answer to prayer. They're taking a little bit of time to take a breather in the transition. They'll be officially starting with us on the 12th. We'll also be letting you know about a welcoming, uh, let's get to know each other type event coming soon. So pay attention to that and uh, hope to see you there as well. All right, exciting. Let me just say a quick prayer before we transition out of that and into our message for today. Lord God, we are grateful for the ways you have been faithful to Andrew and Shay and faithful to us and how you have answered so many prayers. And we pray your blessing upon each of them. And we pray your blessing upon uh, this little new one that's due to arrive here and not too long a time. And we thank you for uh, what you are doing in their lives. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this next page and next chapter of our lives together as a church. And today, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to learn from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to jump right in to this third episode of Set Free. I read this and thought, I'd like to start with this. The top 10 reasons you are too busy to pray today. The top 10 reasons you are too busy to pray today. Number one, you wake up feeling rested, then you realize your alarm should have gone off an hour ago. Number two, your spouse is away on a two-day business trip that's lasted all week. Number three, none of the clean clothes you were able to finally find match. Number four, your teenager shaved the left side of his head. Your bills are due and your toddler hid the checkbook. A strange fluid is dripping from your car. You accidentally delete your quarterly report 10 minutes before a meeting with your boss and you're in charge of games for the youth night tonight. Your dog is throwing up. Your toilet's overflowing, but at least you found your checkbook. Here's what I know. When I think I'm too busy to pray, I'm too busy not to pray. And when I think I'm too busy to pray, I've already slipped into what I'm going to call today Plan B. Okay? You're asking, what is Plan B? What is Plan B thinking? I'm so glad you asked. Point number one. We're going to need to define some terms, so we're going to start with plan A. Plan A is living God's will, God's way. Living God's will, God's way. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 goes like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So plan A is clearly there to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Plan A is living God's will, God's way. Point number two. Hey, aren't you excited? I'm moving fast. (laughs) Point number two. Plan B is living my will, my way. We're going to read the same text focused on it a little different. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. 
Now, when God says, lean not on your own understanding, I do need to clarify some things. Because from the world's perspective, they think of faith as illogical. Faith is not what you use your mind. Faith is where you throw out your understanding. Faith is where you don't use your mind at all. You gotta just believe the stuff you know isn't real and believe it and then it works. No, no, no. God never, ever asks you to throw out your reasoning. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is we've got to figure out how to allow our reasoning to be submitted to his reasoning, that our thinking is to be submitted to his higher thinking. It means that with our minds, we have to actively remind ourselves that, hello, God is smarter than us. Understatement of the year. In fact, God is smarter than all of collective humanity's intelligence combined from all of history of humanity. And even that, I think, is an understatement. And so we have to apply our understanding to have this mindset that begins to trust God's thinking, his plan A, with all of our heart. And it's gonna take understanding to do this, and it's gonna take a special kind of understanding that's applied and learning and trusting what he says is plan A, rather than what we are thinking is a better plan. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. It's not thinking less. It actually, in my opinion, takes a whole lot more effort to think to learn to begin to think with God's higher reasoning. But it's a submitting of our understanding to his higher reasoning. Now, that may sound simple. Okay, I'll begin to try to train my mind to have the mindset of Christ, which we run into in scripture a lot. I'm gonna try to train my mind to think more like the way God thinks. I'm gonna learn from the things that he teaches. I'm gonna work at that, simple enough. I know this. I work at this. And I still completely, frequently realize that I stink at thinking like God. Okay? I will slip into my understanding so frequently that I'm blind to it until I hold up the mirror of God's word and then something leaps off the page like, hello, you're messing up here with your thoughts. I want to give you an example of that. Philippians 2, 3 through 5, and that's not going to be on your screen, so you might want to jot it down. And I've been working on this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others more, of more value than yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Each one of you to the interests of the other. Have, in your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ Jesus. And then the rest of the chapter starts to describe how Jesus thought and how it affected what he did. This mirror just smacks me up one side and down the other. It's like, what? I'm so always looking to my own interests. 
I'm so always looking to how this particular sacrifice or serving this particular person is really making it difficult to do the things that I'm supposed to do, etc., etc. I just need to begin to yield to the Spirit and let the Spirit dictate my agenda, my day, and it might mean I don't know how it's all going to come together as I consider somebody else's needs is more valuable than my own needs? Wow. I have plan B thinking so often. So I don't know if you're caught by surprise when you hold up the mirror of God. If you think, oh, I don't slip into plan B thinking, I'm doing pretty well. My guess is you're not looking into the mirror of God's word as frequently as you need to look into the mirror of God's word because it just shows us how we need to all of us Take steps from wherever we are to where God wants us to be. And these are not achievement steps. These are submission steps to receive all the grace that we can receive from Jesus as we learn and grow. So we're going to be looking at that a little bit more closely today. So point number one was plan A is living God's will God's way. Point number two is plan B is living my will, my way. Point number three is plan B brings big problems. So I gave you an example of how I'm stumbling in this area. Now we're going to take a look at a biblical example. We're going to look at the lives of Abraham and Sarah. It's going to be a little confusing because they're called Sarai and Abram before their name change. And I may slip and say it one way or the other. So I'm talking about the same people. Abram and Abraham, same guy. Sarai, Sarah, same wife, okay, same woman, and we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 16. What I want you to look for is plan B, when they started to fall into plan B thinking. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed. Okay. Oh, it doesn't say that. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. What I love about the Bible is that God God and the Bible never sugarcoats even its heroes. Okay? Okay. Abram is uh, presented to us in multiple places as the exemplary person of faith, but here he's being presented to us in all his flaws, along with his wife, in all of their plan B thinking and the failures that resulted here. So just remember when you're reading all kinds of what you think is, why is this in the Bible? This is horrible. Why is this in the Bible? This is horrible. It's like all of those flaws are the realities of living in a fallen world pointing us to our need in the unflawed, the only unflawed human being that came, who came from heaven as God and was incarnated into this world as the second Adam who didn't fail so that he could become our savior, okay? And so every time we start running into all that mess, it's reminding us we need a savior, we need a savior, it's not just them who need a savior, I need a savior, okay? Now, I want to take a look at some of these flaws that are right here in the text we just looked at. Let's call them sins. Let's call them flaws. They're not identified very clearly, 
Um, so I want us to kind of look at it. Did you see here that Sarai seems like she's blaming God? The Lord has kept me from having children. He's, she shifts from trusting because there was a promise that they're going to have a child and they're very old. She shifted from trusting to blaming or if not blaming, maybe she's mad at God because it hasn't happened yet, but certainly she's not trusting God the way God would have her trust in him and she's now leaning on her own understanding with this very strange plan B. It's really strange to our culture because in her culture where she's living, and you need to understand, this is pre-law, law of Moses, This is in the midst of paganism big time where God has chosen one person now to create his faith and nation and blessing and pathway through which he introduces the Savior. And in their pagan culture, there was a normal way of thinking for a woman of wealth in her position with a slave. In their culture, it was legal and possible to have this take place where you offer your slave to your husband to produce an heir, and this heir becomes your child, your heir. And I just want to remind you that just because it's legal doesn't make it right. And just because it's normal in our culture does not make it moral in our culture. And we have this very strange plan B that seems to have a a weight of, well, maybe this is how God is going to fulfill his promise. So maybe this is what we need to do. And there's maybe another corollary truth to point B that we had here. Plan B is living my will, my way. Well, Plan B might be living your interpretation of God's will your way. And it's way messed up. Now, the odd thing is, when you keep reading in this chapter, it seems like it works. An heir is produced. And as you keep reading, it seems like God is okay with it, but you need to always take truth in its context, and then its greater context, and its greater context, and as you keep reading, you realize quickly how messed up this was for their lives, and how it would mess up the, well, there's a hint of a prophecy that we're going to run into, the offspring of Hagar will become the Arabs, the offspring of Sarah will become the Israelites. And we have this animosity that is between these brothers and it continues to this day. Interesting how that mess up from our logical, reasonable plan Bs can grow to such a degree. Now, I want us to compare their plan. Oh, I didn't talk about Abraham's sin, did I? I kind of made fun of it. Um, Abraham's sin is following precisely the pattern of Adam's sin. Adam listened to Eve. And if you read the text in Genesis 3, he's right there listening to the tempting interchange. 
and he is the king of the universe, given authority, should have been discerning. That was the test. Had he discerned and said, wait, this guy's wrong. God's right. Had he done that, it would have entered into a whole new moral state. But he blew it. Why? He was the classically, overly passive male. Abraham, in this situation, is precisely the same. Classically, overly passive. Sounds like a great plan to me. (laughs) And goes along with this horrible plan B. Now, although it looks like it works, we see immediately that it does not. Let's compare their plan B with Jesus' plan A. Here's a summary statement from Jesus. Mark 10, 6 through 9, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this plan B introduces a third party that tears up the two. Introducing this third party that messes this picture of oneness up and we're going to feel the pain of it as we keep looking. Immediately, we see Sarah regretting her suggested plan B solution. We'll pick up from verse 5 in Genesis 16. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me, you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with you, her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar. So Hagar fled from her. She's cast into the wilderness alone and pregnant. What a mess. On the screen, plan B negative consequences always go far beyond what we ever imagined they would. While you're planning your reasonable plan that makes sense to you because you live in this culture, it makes sense to you if it's not God's plan A. It's going to have ramifications that go far beyond you ever thinking it will go in in a negative way. It's true then, it's true now. And what we learn here is it's true for believers, not just those who don't believe in God. Let that sink in. Why? We are dangerously shaped by what our culture believes is normal. We've had some tectonic shifts in my lifetime. What American culture has shifted to in what is acceptable and right and normal has been through a huge shift in my lifetime. And now we're feeling it. And it's affecting the church dramatically. Plan A, morality, is never out of date. And yet our culture is pushing it on us that the Bible is not relevant. The Bible is old-fashioned. It's about long ago, far away, in a whole different culture. Come on, get with the real world. And I'm telling you, God's plan A is never out of date. 
Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, I find it fascinating that our, in our culture, almost everybody understands the first label, but they do not understand the second label. The first label is adultery. They get it. Yeah, that's betrayal. That's painful. That's horrible. And so many people are going to experience that pain. They totally get that's bad. That's wrong. But the same group of people do not get the other label, sexual immorality. So I want to spend some time there, the meaning of this label. Now, because it's so controversial, I decided I'm going to take the safe route and write everything I'm about to say and read it. Okay? <laughs> Although what the Bible teaches on marriage and human intimacy is quite controversial today, what the Bible teaches is not confusing or unclear. The act of the two becoming one flesh and human intimacy is designed only for the marriage relationship between one woman and one man. This act is out of bounds, outside of marriage and out of bounds before marriage. Even if the acting man and woman marry later. It is called sexual immorality. It's defining what's in bounds and out of bounds. That term, by the way, that term is the Greek word porn. Pornos. So, graphic visual intimacy and nakedness that you shouldn't be experiencing outside of marriage is pornos, sexual immorality. It covers huge sweeping strokes of what should and should not be outside of the marriage relationship. Now, I know this is very offensive to a lot of people, and I do not want to offend anyone. It's just that I want to be a faithful pastor and teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want for you is to experience life to its fullest. Our modern American culture does not trust God's plan A with its boundaries designed for our protection. Our modern American culture now prefers a plan B that chooses to test drive relationships by sleeping together before getting married, rather than building trust strong enough to commit to one another in marriage first. The very idea of test driving comes with a conditional mindset that does not fit with the marriage covenant with its vows and commitments. Test driving may work when you are comparing and shopping for cars. Test driving does not work with people. Cars don't care if you compare Cars don't care if you are not committed to buy before you try. Cars don't care if all you want is a joyride. Cars don't care if they are being used. Cars don't care if you are unfaithful. But people care deeply about all of these matters because we are designed differently than cars. The moral boundaries God gave us fit our design because that is our reality. Now, even secular studies have discovered that our modern American Plan B, test driving model of living together first before marriage, does not produce 
more stable, well-adjusted people or more stable, well-adjusted relationships or more stable or well-adjusted children. Dare I say that our culture's plan B thinking does not work as well as God's plan A? I do. I kind of like that phrase. I do. Secular studies seem to be at a loss as to why. Let me offer just one of many possible explanations to consider. People who want what they want now and take shortcuts for quick and shallow intimacy, even if they commit to marriage later, have already set up a conditional mindset as a pattern of thinking and are far more likely to take shallow shortcuts later when life becomes difficult. Statistically, that's what they're discovering. Let's pause and take a deep breath. So if you're feeling like crud, I've already blown it. Let me let you know right away. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to bring you good news. Good news. And we find good news right here, even in Genesis 16. Beautiful, powerful, good news. Let's continue the narrative together. We'll pick up in verse 6. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you were now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. There's that hint of things to come. However, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So if you're in the middle of plan B, and a plan B mess, please know this. God sees God knows, God cares, and God holds out his loving kindness and mercy and a promise to you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to set you free, to experience life to its fullest now and a life to the full eternally forever. In Jesus, hope, grace, salvation, and good news he offers to you. So why not trust in the Lord with all your heart today and lean not 
on your own understanding. Instead, in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. He can take all this crooked mess and weave a beautiful story if you'll submit to him. And you can help others out that have experienced your plan B messes. And you can offer grace and salvation because of your experience and talk about how good he is. Why not trust him? Now, we're going to finish with a, an extra bonus how, some real specifics to apply your mind in this transformative way that we began to talk about last week about renewing your mind to be transformed. On the back side of the paper outline or on the bottom of your digital outline or if you didn't get an outline, grab one on your way out. Here are these five steps. How do you do this? Step one, when you recognize a tempting plan B thought, look for the lie that promises happiness and write down the lie on an index card, a journal ledger, or note in your phone. Step two, confess it and ask God for help. Step three, search for God's truth, that is God's plan A, in the Bible regarding that lie and write it down. Step four, commit this to memory, this truth that you wrote down from step three. Why? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it until you begin to think more like God. That God's thoughts become your thoughts and you own his plan A as the better plan. It's the solution. It's how you will be set free from the mold that squeezes you that we talked about last week. Step five, speak this truth out loud when you are tempted by the plan B lie. Just a reminder, there are all kinds of plan Bs. I gave you an example of how I, in the mirror, see a plan B thinking in my life, and there are so many different kinds. Just begin to learn the truths and reverse one way of falsely approaching those thoughts and this pattern that's messing you up. And here's the plan. We're going to ask the prayer team to get in their place at the alcove to the left of the stage. If you have a prayer need about anything, go see them for prayer. I'm going to remind you that this whole series also follows up well from the last one. It's not too late to sign up for regeneration, which applies these principles to help set you free from the thing that kind of binds you up. Uh, So that's an opportunity for you out there. And I want to remind you that next week is the fourth installment of Set Free, and it's going to be about being set free from anxiety. Set free from anxiety. So hope hope you'll come back and see you then next week. God bless you. Thank you for coming today. See you next week.